Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at the relationship between racist ideology and the main political parties in America. How have the political parties appealed in coded language, or sometimes not particularly coded language, to that racist ideology? And in turn, how have those appeals justified and sustained and perpetuated that ideology? We're going to look at all of that, as well as the role of sexism, of changing gender norms, of religion, and then how all of those factors interact with other elements of the conservative movement. For instance, economic or libertarian ideology, what's the relationship of that to all of these variables? My guest today, I have a really great guest to help us make sense of all of this, is Angie Maxwell. Professor Maxwell is the director of the Diane Blair Center of Southern Politics and Society and an associate professor of political science at the University of Arkansas. She received her PhD in American Studies from the University of Texas, and her research and commentary have been featured in Slate and on MSNBC's The Read Report and The Cycle. She's the author of The Indicted South, Public Criticism, Southern Inferiority and the Politics of Whiteness, which won the VO Key Award for the Best Book in Southern Politics. She's also the co-editor of Unlocking VO Key Jr. and The Legacy of Second Wave Feminism in American Politics, and the editor of a new edition of Ralph McGill's A Church, A School. Her recent articles have appeared in Southern Cultures, Presidential Studies Quarterly, The Journal of Black Studies, American Behavioral Scientist, Race and Social Problems, Politics, Groups and Identities, Social Science Quarterly, Virginia Quarterly Review, Vox, and The Huffington Post. And her new book, which we discuss in this interview, The Long Southern Strategy, has just been released. So, Professor Maxwell is someone who is uniquely qualified to discuss the history of this, both on a cultural and social and on a quantitative level. So it was a real pleasure to have her on. This will be a two-part series. We talked for quite some time. Professor Maxwell was very generous with her time, and I really, really enjoyed having this conversation. In the first part, we're going to go through the history of Republican appeals to Southern identity, what's often called the Southern strategy, from the 1950s up until up until basically the present day. And then in the second part, we're going to get into a more freeform conversation where we offer essentially an extended autopsy of what happened in the 2016 election and how all of the history and all of the issues we've been discussing in this part impacted what happened there, both in the primaries of both parties and in the general election. So that'll be out next week. One quick recommendation before we get started is if this um, historically focused first part is interesting to you. An episode I did a little while ago that might pair quite well with it 
is called Civil Rights from Nixon to Obama. And that's with Mary Frances Berry, who had a personal relationship with many of these presidents and worked with them on civil rights, and so has a really interesting take on a lot of this from a first-hand perspective, as well as just being a really cool person. So if this one interests you, then that episode might pair quite well with it. One quick just note on this is we recorded this on Friday, August 2nd. So just as a note in the timeline, we recorded this a week or two after the controversy about Trump's racist tweets. A couple of days after uh, the audio emerged, which we discuss in the podcast actually, of Reagan talking to Nixon, saying some overtly racist things. But a day or so before the most recent mass shooting, which appears, at least from the reporting I've read, appears to have been motivated by racist ideology. So we were having this conversation before news of that broke. And just running through that timeline there shows just how important and consequential understanding the role of racism is in understanding American political life and in understanding American society more generally. Um, And I guess all of that just speaks to how important ideologies can be. Like political philosophy does not occur in a vacuum, these things really matter for real people's lives, and the ideas that we discuss on this show aren't a game. They're not an intellectual, or not merely an intellectual exercise. They really motivate people to do some amazing things sometimes, but also some terrible and evil things sometimes. So let's get to it. Final final note is when I recorded this, I had a bit of a cold. I joked with Professor Maxwell that I was recovering from a near-terminal case of man flu. You know that thing guys do where we have a two or three out of ten bad cold, but in our heads, in our personal egoic narrative, it becomes a 7 or an 8 out of 10 where we're really suffering. That's what I was going through at this point. So, um, although the technical record quality of this is very good and I'm happy with it, um, I do spoil it slightly by sniffling a little bit through this interview, so I do really apologise for that. I don't know if you'll notice it or not, but at some points when I was listening to this back, I definitely sound a little bit funny, so that's what's going on there. And so I do apologise to the audience if I sound a little funny, and to Professor Maxwell for having uh, a somewhat congested uh, conversation partner for this one. But apart from that, let's get straight to it. I really loved having this conversation. I definitely learned a lot from it as someone who's interested in conservative ideology. I definitely got a lot out of this, and I hope you do too. So, without any further preamble, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Professor Angie Maxwell.
Okay, I am joined today by Professor Angie Maxwell. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, I never quite know how to ask this question, but how do you self-describe what you do? I guess a trite way of putting it is you're at a party and someone says, so what do you do and what's your, what's your response? Well, I mean, technically I'm a political science professor, but my PhD is in American studies. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of combining cultural criticism and, you know, statistical analysis. So it's kind of a weird mix. And I focus specifically on Southern politics, Southern politics and how it affects American politics. And your chair or head of a department specifically of Southern studies, right? Yeah. I'm I'm the director of a research center on Southern politics and society, and I hold an endowed chair in Southern studies. Could you tell me like a bit about what that is and what that does? Yes. Our center is, um, our goal is to you know, do, do political science research, so quantitative research on the real South. Mm. So most polls dramatically undersample the South, They're not intentionally, it just happens. And that has caused a lot of kind of misinformation about the region. And so we have a big national poll that we do um, that has big oversamples of the South and of African-Americans and Latinos in the South so we can get a more complete picture. We are not glamorizing kind of the South. It is, we are more concerned with its, its very real problems and getting good research out there. Okay, cool. And you've just, um, you've just published a book called The Long Southern Strategy, right? That's right. Long Southern Strategy, How Chasing White Voters in the South Changed American Politics. So let's start with the Southern strategy and history and then pull that forward into today. I guess talking about the Southern strategy, the first thing to note is we have a resurfacing of a sort of, what what would we call this, Southern strategy denial from the right? Yes, we do. So you're probably better placed to give a summary on this, but it seems like a number of, uh, let's say, conservative commentators, that's more neutral Mm -hmm. than what I was going to say have come back with something that I feel like this we've we've heard this argument before maybe about 10 years ago that there was no southern strategy and this is kind of a nefarious politically correct myth in order to in order to what is actually a good question but um people like Dinesh D'Souza and Coulter Candace Owens um probably a bunch that I'm forgetting have been sort of asserting this and a bunch of uh, people on the other side, from commentators to historians, have been pushing back on it. Do you want to start with that? Like, how? Sure. What, what's going on with this? Well, first, just so the common understanding of the Southern strategy that most people, you know, know in their minds is this idea that, you know, Richard Nixon played and Goldwater before him in '64 and '68 and '72, really kind of try to win white Southern voters by, in the aftermath of the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65, really kind of go appeal to that white racial angst Mm. and, you know, try to flip those voters. And they successfully do it, and the South turns red. Mm. So that's kind of our, you know, common understanding. It's a whole lot more complicated than that. Mm. But I think what's happening right now, and it was denial 
that was denial at the time. But then in 2005, the head of the Republican National Committee, Kim Melman, went to the NAACP and gave a speech and apologized for it Mm. and said, you know, this was not good on behalf of the party. And it was a very, you know, some people said it was an insincere apology. The whole speech does read very sincere. And and that's part of the story, too, because there has been a battle within the Republican Party about let's not do this. And those folks have lost out, you know, but they do exist very much so. And so fast forward to now when you have, you know, President Trump really um, doubling down on kind of the most overt, you know, racist statements, you see you see other people in the party, I'm sure, feeling nervous that the Republican Party is going to be kind of cast under that umbrella. And one way to do one way to counter that would be to come out and say, and you know, call that out and denounce it. But another way is to say the Democrats have been just as bad. Right. And the Democrats were the party of segregation. They were the party of slavery. They were the party of Jim Crow. And they were. But. By doing that, they kind of. They paint it all as just politics. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's a way of kind of excusing it or downplaying it. Um, And they're painting themselves as the party of Lincoln. um, And really, honestly, just denying that there was a realignment in the South. Now, that that bothers me because it implies that all of these kind of white Southern attitudes just changed. So Mm. the Republican Party has been continuous party of Lincoln and the South moved from Democrat to Republican, then it must be all these people changed their minds. Right. Right. They evolved on race and now they're very accepting of, you know, racial equality. And that that just isn't (laughs) the case. There are some, of course, but um, that just doesn't we don't see that in the data. We've never seen that in the data. Um, And it it doesn't help us deal with our very real issues that we have down here. Yeah. So there's one thing I could imagine this argument trying to accomplish, which would be democratic portrayals of Republican racism are overstated. I mean, okay, that's an argument, right? It seems like they want to establish something more than that, which is like, and I'm just quoting them here, Democrats are the real racists. Um, And certainly not sweeping under the rug the Democratic Party's many, many overt appeals to racism. Absolutely. It does. I'm always slightly confused as to what this argument, the conservative um, denial of the Southern strategy, that is, is supposed to be accomplishing. Because let's say we deny that there was a specific strategy by Richard Nixon, and certainly, and we'll get into this, it wasn't just a, 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 an immediate thing. The, the bringing of the South into the Republican column took a generation. We can get into mm-hmm. the complexities of that. But it nonetheless is the case that we're in a scenario today whereby, what, eight, nine out of ten black votes go to Democrats, where white allies even, if you have white people who say mm-hmm. they strongly care about combating racism, those votes almost always go to the Democrats, very rare that they don't. And then if on the converse side, if you take people who will self-profess to being motivated by anti-black racism, they're almost or not almost always, but they will usually vote Republican. So what's this? So something is, and that probably wouldn't have been the case 50, 60, 70 years ago. So something has changed in American society since then. 
and you can quibble with the historical narrative, and you do, right? But this argument seems to be trying to establish that black people overwhelmingly voting Democrat are doing so against their own self-interest, and that this entire thing is like a politically correct myth cooked up by the media that the Republican Party has never been able to counter. That seems to me an obviously preposterous conclusion. And so I don't know what the punchline is supposed to be. That black people have just been getting it wrong politically for a generation? Like, is that, is that what we're arguing here? Well, I mean, that, that is one way of looking at it. And if I sincerely thought the Republican Party was trying to appeal to African Americans by, you know, rebranding itself, retelling its history, that would be one thing. But I, I think it is more trying to establish that any focus on race or the Democratic Party's focus on policies that we continue to need to combat institutional or structural racism is reverse discrimination against whites. Because I think that motivates some of the Republican base, a big chunk of it. So if you deny the party's ever been racist, you give those folks an alibi Right. Hmm. And then if you see the Democrats continuing to press on, you know, federal programs to help African-Americans or people of color in this country, then you're setting it up as discriminatory against whites. Um, I think that that's in their motivation. So a while ago, um, I've worked on quite a few political campaigns as well as like issue based campaigns. And it's quite eye-opening to do, I've done a lot of like door-to-door canvassing and stuff, but normally you're just hitting Democrats. It's quite eye-opening to do it for Republicans, Mm -hmm. to try and like, say, exert pressure on a Republican state senator by talking to their primary voters, um, who are, to me at least, when I knock on their door, right, very nice people. I'm not, you know, very warm, very welcoming. I'm thinking I've done this in upstate New York, a little bit in northern Florida, stuff like in Maine as well, can have some weird attitudes. This idea that white people are the new victims is very widely subscribed to. Like, this is anecdotal, but I've heard this unprompted from hundreds of people at this point. Um, I know that's not like a statistical study, but in in a way that I don't think is fake. Like, I don't don't think they're just saying it. They they feel that, and they have been made to feel that. Right. And that's part of this kind of, what I say about how this changed American politics, this long Southern strategy is a, you know, I have, I have deep empathy for these folks. I come from these folks. Mm. And a lot of them have been made to feel like it is a constant threat, that it's all just a power shift, that it's not about equality. It's about, you know, African-Americans getting an advantage. The same thing with, you know, the kind of anti-feminist spirit. It's not about women wanting equality. It's about them wanting to control everything. And feeling like, particularly after a two-term African-American president, that they will be on the receiving end of what, you know, many whites have done to people of color over generations. Um, And it is, it is, it is, it is terrifying to some of them in a really, you know, legitimate way. Um, It's just not a zero-sum game, but it's been made to feel like it is. And so their feelings about that are are, are real, you know, to them. And a lot of that has been 
orchestrated and manufactured. And it's what keeps that sentiment high. But Republican leadership needs that sentiment to be high to turn out the vote. So that speaks to another theme that we could talk about when we get into the history, which is the causality here. Is it merely yes. pandering to pre-existing um, racism or is it feeding back and creating that racism in and of itself? Yeah. Um, so just to lock this in, though, what you're saying is this, and I'm using somewhat inverted commas here, intellectual argument that the Southern strategy didn't happen ultimately needs to be seen as not establishing an intellectual conclusion, but just part feeding into a narrative of white grievance and of white fear, and that's its ultimate social function. There is no, like, we're using these premises to establish this conclusion, because like I say, I'm not even sure what the conclusion would be. It's more just another discursive theme within an overall picture that says white people are under threat. Yes, and it's the same, absolutely, and it's it's almost the same technique as when Nixon kind of codes the language to appeal to mm. white, you know, whites that feel this this angst in the 1960s mm. and early 70s is that they don't want to say that that's what it's about. They don't want to believe. They don't want to articulate that they feel that way, mm. right? They need some kind of cover for that. And so what denying the long Southern strategy does, and particularly when it plays up that the Republican Party has been the party of equality and the party of Lincoln, is it helps make those folks feel righteous in those views. And it makes them feel like it's okay and that they are somehow justified in voting for the party that's gone in that direction right now. Um, and, you know, I, I actually end the whole book with this quotation from Abraham Lincoln. He was given a speech at Cooper Union in New York and paraphrasing Lincoln, of course. He, he, he tells the audience, he goes, you know, we have... We have cooperated with the South so many times. You know, we've 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 tried to find all of these, you know, middle ground in terms mm. of slavery was the Mason Dixon, you know, all of these things. And it never ceases. Like they still feel it's always an attack. You know, what will make it stop? What will make them so what will satisfy them? And Lincoln says, This and only this, you know, cease in calling slavery wrong and call it right. And it mm. is this sense that they don't just want to be accommodated. They want to be, they want to be justified in what they're doing. They want someone to say, yes, you are right to feel this way. This is the party of equality and whites are part of that equality too. And you are being trampled on. So let's start with the initial denial. And as you work through in the book, um, there was sort of successive waves of this, right, focusing on different issues. But just to begin with, the idea that someone would think in the late 60s, early 70s, that this was a good idea electorally to go after white racist, particularly southern white racist votes, that shouldn't be crazy. And one thing I always point out here 
is how high the opposition was to a lot of the um, civil rights landmarks that we rightfully celebrate through the 60s, is that these were very, especially not just the Civil Rights Act, but some of these um, Supreme Court decisions like Brown versus the Board, Loving versus Virginia. Um, I think these are all in the 60s. I don't have it in front of me. Um, but like mid to late 60s, all of these were explicitly counter-majoritarian. Um, I saw some polling to the effect that 72% of white voters were strongly opposed to Loving versus Virginia, which is the ruling that legalized um, interracial marriage. Um, and I think similar, it was like high 50s, low 60s for Brown versus the board, but it wasn't, it wasn't close. And yeah. the idea that someone would look at that and go, we have done something to the country which is profoundly destabilizing and probably quite shocking to many people that a majority of white voters are strongly opposed to and has kind of been at least somewhat supported by the leadership of both parties. There's a big opening there to go after those votes. And they start seeing the cracks even before that, because after FDR creates his New Deal coalition, which can only happen, you have so many different groups in that coalition that shouldn't hold together, you know, but we're in a crisis after the Great Depression, of course, and then we're in World War II, and so it it kind of holds, but looking at it now, you're like, how and how are the, those groups cannot be in the same political coalition? Um, and when Truman, when FDR dies and Truman becomes president, Truman starts shifting the Democratic Party towards kind of a pro civil rights you know, kind of that wing of it. I mean, he, by executive order, desegregates the military. He gives the first speech at the NAACP in which he says, by all Americans, I mean, all Americans. Hmm. And when he gets the nomination, you know, I mean, there were people that thought Truman was kind of a throwaway, but when he gets the nomination at the, in 1948, the Southern Democrats walk out of the convention and they hold their own convention. Mm. Um, and they run Strom Thurmond, the segregationist senator from South Carolina, at the top of the Dixiecrat ticket. Now, the Dixiecrats, this was their strategy. They think the Democrats can't win without us. Like the National Democrats cannot mm. win without the Southern Democrats. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk out. They'll lose and they'll see they can't win without us. And then they will have to pull back to where we are. Well, Truman wins. And the Southern Democrats are then in a little bit of a purgatory of sorts. They're kind of worried that they're losing their pull in their own party. Um, But there's no Republican infrastructure Hmm. in the region to really do much else. So through the 1950s, because Eisenhower enjoys pretty widespread appeal, post-war prosperity. But then when Brown v. Board hits, right, you get real... Um, stress among Southern Democrats about losing control within the Democratic Party. Nixon runs in 60 against Kennedy. You know, a lot of Southerners are not happy about a Catholic on the Mm. ticket, um, except in Louisiana. And Richard Nixon runs a pro-civil rights campaign. I mean, his commercials from 1960 are explicitly pro-civil rights. So after JFK squeaks out his victory... It's Barry Goldwater, Republican Barry Goldwater, senator from Arizona, who tells the party, look, we are not going to get the African-American vote. 
Kennedy has locked that up. We we ought to go hunting where the ducks are. Hmm. And by the ducks, he meant these white Southerners. So if you're looking at a map, if you're looking at an electoral map and saying, what are we going to do? Which is, of course, what Democrats are doing right now, right? Um, you look at this homogenous voting block in the South, and you think, if we can just crack it some, it puts a whole bunch of, you know, different roads to victory, you know, become available to us. And, but it is a debate. So at the 1964 Republican National Convention, there are two wings of the Republican Party that are duking it out. There's the Rockefeller Republicans, which are pro-civil rights. Mm. And then there's Goldwater and his group. Who, Goldwater has just voted like a month before against the Civil Rights Act. And there's you know, booze from the audience and cheers, both sides. I mean, it's a real moment. And Goldwater wins. And Strom Thurmond changes his party ID from Democrat to Republican. And he goes on the stump for Goldwater. He called it Operation Dixie. And they play up, you know, aggressively that Goldwater is the one who stood up against the Civil Rights Act. And remember... What they're what a lot of Southerners like Strom Thurmond in particular in South Carolina is are so worried about is the Voting Rights Act because mm. they know that's around the corner and that dramatically affects their own ability to hold their seat. Mm. I mean, one of the highest portions of African American, um, you know, voters is in South Carolina, mm. right? So that directly threatens somebody like Thurmond. So when so Goldwater wins five deep South state. He wins the vote in Mississippi by 87%. So 87% of Mississippi, these are people who have been Democrats since before the civil war. And they flip 87% to Goldwater. Now, Goldwater only wins those five Southern states and his home state of Arizona. So it's a, it's, you know, it's a landslide for, you know, LBJ. In the wake of Kennedy's, you know, assassination. And the Republican Party at that point, you know, reconsiders. They sit down, they're like, you know, he went so far. Did we lose like the rest of the country? Like, where's the balance? Um, and some people say we need to abandon that. You know, we go back to the Rockefeller Republicans, the pro-civil rights, real battle. And then when George Wallace the segregationist governor of Alabama jumps in the 1968 race as a third party candidate. Mm -hmm. The Republicans realize he's going to win the hard, hard line kind of deep South. And so Nixon reverses course completely from his campaign in 1960 and uses a lot of this kind of coded language in order to speak to that Southern white angst without doing it so aggressively that it turns off Republican voters elsewhere. He makes a deal with Strom Thurmond, you know, says, I will not enforce um, civil rights mm. legislation, you know, benign neglect, they called it, the law and order stuff, the war on drugs. It's all um an effort. And that's now you can see that in Nixon's papers. Like right. there is a conversation, right, about that and a strategy, um, which is why the denial part is, 
you know, historically inaccurate. Well, that's what I was going to say. So firstly, let me just try and offer, um, well, firstly, just as a basic question, the denial at this point is just, it's not just counter to voting patterns shifting, which I guess could have happened for any number of reasons, but it's counter to like the explicitly stated intentions of many of the key players that we have in the historical record, right? Yes, we have we have it in the historical record. And and Mississippi does not go from Democrat to 87% Republican by a coincidence. It just doesn't happen. Right. You know, like that is that is that is completely dramatic. And and if I mean we when when Goldwater does his tour through the South, I mean they set him up on Halloween Day in South Carolina for a big rally that's televised across, you know, about nine other southern states. And and that is how they start hmm. with this is the guy who voted against the Civil Rights Act. You know, now people get people get upset because, you know. They think. And I, I can't speak to Goldwater's internal motivations for his vote. Hmm. You know, he said he didn't think the federal government should legislate, right, morality that gets it in trouble and it's too much federal oversight. And that may be, it may be absolutely what he meant, Mm. but he went along with, and his surrogates pushed hard a message that they knew would win Southern voters and Goldwater, Goldwater went right along with doing that. So one way I think about this period that we've talked about I guess in my head, I think about it in the 60s, though, as you say, the roots of it extend back, Mm -hmm. is a lot of politics is about expression of identity, right? And normally, your partisan identity sort of matches up with other more fundamental types of identity, be it national or racial or so on. However, there can come these periods of realignment wherein your partisan identity, almost like a Venn diagram, stops mm-hmm. matching up completely with more sort of fundamental types of identity. So this is a bit of a weird analogy, but I think it works. In my home country of the UK right now, you're seeing that people still have their partisan identities, like I'm a Labour voter, I'm a Tory voter, but the identity that matters more to them than any of that is am I pro or anti-European? And that ultimately, back in the day, people would sort of, if the Tory party has a policy that they don't like, but they're still a Tory voter and they'll follow the lead of the party. But because the two main parties have become untethered from, or they don't neatly overlap with, these identities that are more fundamental to them, and you can just ask people in the UK, you can say, is it more important that you're a Tory voter or that you're a Remainer. And people say that I'm a Remainer or that I'm a Lever. Those are the more important ones. And it seems like a similar thing happens in America through the 50s, 60s, 70s, where you have a more fundamental identity that's um, white, southern, whatever you want to call it, that then has become untethered from a political partisan identity. And the political partisans are sort of all running around trying to figure out how to make sense of that realignment. A- ab- absolutely true. So Southern identity the, is so strong. I it mean, is. there's no regional identity that even comes close when we measure it as Southern identity. And 
you can have African-Americans have a Southern identity, but it's a totally different thing. Hmm. The white Southern identity, something very specific. And it is so hard for those folks to let go of, to, to break it from Democratic Party because it was hmm. so tied for so long that we see them vote for a Goldwater and vote for a Nixon, but but not change their party ID for for decades. Right. They still kind of hold it. It's who they are. They kind of will the Democratic Party come back to them? Like it is it is fundamental um, at this really deep place, which is also why you know. And not understanding that is one of the reasons we kind of cut the Southern strategy short, because in 1976, when a Southerner runs, Jimmy Carter, Hmm. peanut farmer, Southern Baptist, born again Christian, Southerner, thick accent, runs, there's a two to one shift back um, among Southern whites. And the South goes for Jimmy Carter. So it goes right back to blue. Right. And by that time, you only have about less than 30% of white Southerners who had, who identify as Republican. So they by no means have flipped the South at that point. Right. And yet that's the story we tell, right? Oh, it flipped, but that erases you know, a lot of the kind of realignment, the the meat of it, because realignment is tough. It doesn't happen often. You mm. know, a critical realignment is one when we, people do change their party identification. It's not about just one candidate. Right. Um, and so what happens next and how Republicans cope with that what they do when they realize oh my goodness we've 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 had four election cycles now where we have really tried to break up the south and it's gone right back what are we going to do that's where reagan comes in before we get to that i've got one more question about this this period which is Another lens through which this period, particularly Goldwater, gets read is the sort of um, mainstreaming of a sort of quite hardcore libertarian or individualist or whatever you want to call it, a sort of quite hardline form of conservative economic ideology um, that captures the Republican Party and then is going to become really ascendant with Reagan and sort of have an ideological lock on the party through to today. Do you have any thoughts on the interaction of that? Well, I mean, my impression of this period is, like, the fundamental pull here, like, if you're talking about a solar system, like, the big gravitational object everything else is revolving around, is the sense of, like you say, white Southern identity. And that, like, economic libertarianism might have been, like, some sort of planet revolving around that. But, like, the sort of states' rights thing, the independence thing, that all has to be understood in its relationship to these more foundational issues of racial identity. Um, But that, nonetheless, is what a lot of people want to take from Goldwater as the primary fact about him, that he's a libertarian. 
So I'm just wondering how you make sense of the interaction of those two distinct but related ideological currents within conservative thought. I think, I think they're, I mean, I don't dismiss it by any, by any means, because I think for people, for people who were not living under Jim Crow, they did not realize that everything does revolve around it. Mm. Like it's a, it is a gravitational pull holding everything kind of in its place. And so if you're not in that, and you are worried about how big is government getting, hmm. which is a completely legitimate concern, particularly after, you know, the modern presidency hmm. under FDR and it's hmm. really changed. And what will government enforce? Right. We shift. We shift during this period of time from a. You know, even a legal system that is more con- concerned with the majority rights to a legal system that's making sure we protect minority rights. I mean, that and that is a that's hard. And that takes a lot of federal government enforcement and funds and programs and all of that. And there were people concerned with how like how can government you know change how people feel about things, right? How can it change like can it legislate some kind of morality and that government should shouldn't try to do that right that that is not its role and and you know it's a it, it's a legitimate it's a legitimate concern and and states rights even to some degree um i i kind of i understand you know the need for that independence particular particularly if you're in a state that is doing things with its funds from the federal government or just with its own, you know, economy and tax money that are fair and equitable, hmm. right? If you're living outside of that region and you see your state government doing, you know, good things or fair things or things you agree with, then you're much more prone to go get government off our back, like federal government, like our state's doing fine. But what people just don't realize is that, you know, the federal money coming into the South is propping up white supremacy in extreme Mm. ways. So, you know, states' rights is a let's keep that. Mm. Let's protect that. Um, It doesn't delegitimize their real libertarian feelings. But those are a lot easier to have if you live in a place where you see government kind of being responsible, having two-party politics, Mm. right? Having real two-party politics, a contest of ideas, right? And having some kind of balance. When you're in the South and it's one-party politics and it's demagoguery and, you know, white supremacy and patriarchy really embedded in the institutions that are supported – Constantly, you know, federal intervention looks like help, you know. Mm. Um, th- those states also didn't, you know, go through Reconstruction, mm. right? That's that's when really the Southern states see the federal government as absolutely, for white Southerners, dramatically altering their entire existence. So their me, entire, you know, society and hierarchy. 
Um, and so that's going to create a very different reaction to, you know, or very different motivation for mm. hands-off government. So let me try and sum this up in my own words. So this might be slightly distinct from what you just said, and let me know if it is. But as a political ideology point, it is perfectly logically possible to have a sort of self-contained libertarianism that's independent of these sort of cultural racial concerns that we're talking about. However, as it has actually existed in American history, and I would argue still exists today, those sorts of libertarian framings tend to be contingently adjacent to a more fundamental set of concerns about identity and used as ways of expressing and cashing out that more fundamental identity in, um, a, in, in a more neutral way. So, like, so instead of saying, I want my state's government to continue to privilege white people, you say, I believe in the separation of powers and states' rights, and so on and so forth down the line. And it sort of serves as like an ideological linger franco, a neutral language through which you can communicate your concerns to, um, but much like people are bilingual in terms of languages, people are bilingual in terms of ideological languages. And the libertarianism, which I will say can be just self-contained and on its own, but more often plays the role of, like I say, this contingently adjacent thing that allows Southern concerns to be expressed in a way that appears more neutral and appears more reasonable to a non-Southern observer. Absolutely. Absolutely. It can be, it, it is completely possible for someone to absolutely hold a libertarian viewpoint and to not hold, you know, racist ideology. Hmm. Totally possible to do that likely outside of the region where these things are not happening right, right? so it's um and and i and i and i do that and i i know people like that and i i understand their concerns and there are legitimate concerns about the size and scope of government it's just that debate is a red herring in the middle of this in the south it right. just it just is right so let's move forward because my read, though, is through this period. Well, let's just move forward. Um, so the next bit is, like you say, Jimmy Carter's come in and actually reclaimed a lot of the South, mm -hmm. right? Or fought off this Republican invasion. And Republicans are probably correct to be a little bit concerned there. And this actually pairs very well with the current news cycle in that we recently got some tape from what I believe the Nixon archives, where mm -hmm. we heard some overtly racist language coming from former President um, Reagan. So could you talk about Reagan's role sure. in, in the next step of this story? A absolutely. Well, there's, there's, two there's two kind of um, threads through the song Southern Strategy. The first is that you know, playing to white racial angst does not end. It just morphs. So it has to adapt to the times and it has to create a new sense of emergency. So what, what had worked under Nixon is going to have to shift if you're going to appeal to that under Reagan. 
But the other thing it does is it finds other cultural, you know, divides, you know, schisms, fractures, places where the Republican Party might be able to pick up um, Southern white votes. And it's going to do that on the issue of the Equal Rights Amendment. Mm. And that is really something that we have, you know, not put into the puzzle. So I'll start with that part. Mm. Um, And all this, by the way, is very data driven by the Republicans. They were way ahead of the game in terms of intense polling of political attitudes and behaviors and trying to find these fractures. Mm. So the. And this I mean, it really is something that I think that, you know, kind of the rest of the country who doesn't live here, you know, misses is that the gender roles are still so entrenched Mm. um, traditional gender roles and that. And with with white women still very much protective of those gender roles, too. Mm. Right. Now, that starts in the antebellum times. It can be traced all the way back to before the war, when in order to justify white supremacy, um, Southern white women were portrayed as fragile and in need of constant protection and kind of put up on a pedestal out of the public arena. Right. And they were said to be like that. Because then they would need protection from. African-American men who were threatening and violent. Hmm. All of that justifies, you know, kind of white supremacy and violence towards African-Americans. And it packages it all as kind of chivalry, Hmm. right? This is the culture. Now, does it exist exactly like that? No, I mean, it changes. But the notion that women are kind of Southern white women are on this pedestal and that They need to be protected and it's fragile and they shouldn't, you know, it would be upsetting to be involved in politics, all of that. That has continued Mm. uh, in ways that we can we can actually see in terms of vote turnout and all of this. Right. So that exists. So here comes the Equal Rights Amendment. And Phyllis Schlafly, who is not from the South, she was from St. Louis, starts the pushback against the Equal Rights Amendment. She starts an organization called Stop ERA, Mm. which stood for Stop Taking Our Privileges, right? And she framed, I mean, she was a brilliant political strategist. She framed feminism as an ideology and anti-feminism as an equally valid counter-ideology. So feminism was not choice. Mm. She frames it as a mandate, Right. And anti-feminism deserved equal time, equal seats on any commission about women, you know, um, equal federal financial support. Um, it's, she really sets up this true false equivalency hmm. and it absolutely blindsides the feminists hmm. who are which, you know. Are in both parties, hmm. got both parties supporting the Equal Rights Amendment, you've got feminist leadership in both parties. Um And when Phyllis Schlafly tells audiences that the Equal Rights Amendment will require them to put their children in government daycare, will force them to work, will force them to serve on the front lines, it just absolutely violates 
every expectation that Southern white women have been raised to, you know, in preparation for, right? And And who they kind of see themselves as being. And I guess one point to just add in here is we, we often think about oppression as something done by one group to another group, which of course it is. But it's really difficult to understate how much some women are bought into this particular ideology. It's not, it's not the case that the it is the case that some of the. I mean, you mentioned Phyllis Schlafly, but she's not like just a figurehead. Some of the strongest support for what you might call anti-feminist ideology is coming from women, right? Absolutely, because it is not set up like oppression in almost any other way we see oppression. It is set up as your you are privileged to be taken care of. You are privileged to not have to worry about the hardships of life and of our politics and of these fights. And what it does is it it casts your oppression as privilege and it it creates a dependency and a moral complacency um, and kind of a bubble um, mentality that that then justifies an entire set of institutions like women's education um, and curriculum, which was in the South often focused on domestic, you know, studies or home economics or finishing schools or, you know, social graces Mm. and all of that. Every, I mean, institutions, including, you know, Greek life and sororities and debutante balls and beauty pageants and all of that. And now even among poor Southern white women who Mm. had to work, there was an aspirational, you know, hope of one day being able to stay stay home, mm. right? Of being able to have enough that you didn't have to work, mm. right? Um, and the culture is still set up that way in in many many ways, um, and for lots of people. And so when Phyllis Schlafly says this is going to change all of that. Mm. You know, um, these Southern white women show up in droves at these um, Women's Commission meetings and literally get politically involved for the moment in the short run to make sure they aren't expected to be in the long run. Right. So we hold a national women's uh, conference in 1977 in Houston. Big bipartisan effort. You have both the former first lady at the time, Betty Ford, Republican, and the current first lady, Rosalind Carter, Democrat, both speaking. And it is a big push for the Equal Rights Amendment. And Phyllis Schlafly hosts a counter rally that 20,000 women show up at, also in Houston, and calls it the Family Values Rally. And is that the origin of that phrase into our politics? Okay. And then the Republican, the Republican establishment takes notice. Reagan's team polls 40,000 American women. Elizabeth Dole helps head that up. 
and they categorize women into 64 types. They give them names like Nancy's and Betty's and Helen's. And they realize that they can win Southern white women by embracing the Phyllis Schlafly line about gender roles. And so in 1980, when Reagan runs, the Republican Party drops the ERA from its platform after 40 years of having it in there. And they embrace really traditional um, kind of gender norms. So you see a, you know, a Nancy Reagan that is really playing to the stay at home, you know, wife all of a sudden, though she'd had a career Mm. and you see Reagan really playing up his masculinity um, and Southern white women and men, but Southern white women roll out for him. Well, this then sets up the mechanic, which I think we're seeing really, like even just in the last four years, come to fruition now, which is the the masculine coding of the Republican oh, Party yeah. and the somewhat now converse feminine coding of the, the Democratic Party. And that has, if there's sort of a branch in the tree, that begins to pull apart at about this time, right? Yeah. And also, I mean, this is, this is, to me, this is one of the things that we, I'll I'll, I'll see how I can say this because it's so important. Um, You know, when the 64 Civil Rights Act passes, you know, the idea that the workplace is going to be integrated, right, Mm. is, you know, upsetting to people, but you still had such a high portion of African-Americans who had been kept out of any kind of, you know, higher educational attainment that they would need to integrate some of these workplaces, right? They're simply not going to have the degrees or the qualifications because they haven't been allowed to, but women do. Mm. And it's women that, that if women go into the workplace, that, that changes everything because that not only changes your workplace, that can change your home life, mm. right? And that is, it's just something we don't talk about, but it's, it is destabilizing at this, in this huge way. So a lot of the rhetoric that had been used against, well, how's the federal government going to enforce all of these civil rights, you know, plans for African-Americans, the exact same language gets put on, put on. How is the federal government supposed to police you know, people's marriages and personal relationships and police sexual harassment issues and all of that. How is that, you know, going to be feasible? So the same language is picked up. Um, and again, to talk about the federal enforcement parts, of the Equal Rights Amendment. And again, you can see like political ideologies are my thing, you can see this sort of libertarian ideology as playing a similar role there, in that you you can easily imagine a a construction of libertarian ideology that's very pro-feminist, say, individual rights and all that. But I, I think you can't look at political ideologies as just what they ought to be or what you would like them to be. You have to look at them as they are and as they have been. And this sort of libertarian language is in this period being used to express what you call anti-feminist concerns, not in that I want to be as a woman left alone to pursue my career, but I want to be, presumably as a man, 
left alone in my workplace, free from all of these government policing and, like, coming in and telling me who I can hire and all of that. Absolutely. But here's the thing. It didn't have to be a partisan issue. Hmm. We could have had that debate. Both parties could have said, we continue to support the Equal Rights Amendment. What we... What we need to figure out is to what degree we're going to police. What is it going to look like? And have a, an honest debate about how you make that work, right? Mm. And what the rules are going to be. And that's what it was until seeing Phyllis Schlafly's efforts and the attention it got in the South and having lost Southern white voters, the Republican Party goes that direction to the great dismay of Republican feminists hmm. who had very been very active in the movement, right? A very active. Again, feeling like a tug of war within the Republican Party with people saying, don't do this. Don't do this. But So then we go to the question I, I think I mentioned earlier, which is that of, of causality and because of mm-hmm. it, moral complicity, which is, is it just that people demanded candidates with certain views about race and then gender, and those candidates through historical contingencies ended up becoming Republicans as opposed to Democrats? Or is it that American history was set on a different course or different courses by the decisions that the Republican Party made? And had it not pursued these electoral strategies, it's not to say prejudice would have stopped existing, but that we might be in a very different place today. You know, I think we'd be in a different place. I think that, I mean, Phyllis Schlafly actually, before this, writes a book called An Echo, Not a Choice in 1964. Goldwater reads it. Goldwater uses that slogan. Mm. Phyllis Schlafly says in that, Republicans are just acting like Democrats light. Right. Like you really have to stand out and not just be an echo. You've got to be a choice. Well, that's another idea that's stuck. Right. Stuck big time. And so what happens is that is there this animosity and, you know, fear about the civil rights changes? Yes. Some people had expressed it vehemently. Others were just nervous. Others shifted when it quit being an abstraction about like equality and turned into actually boots on the ground Mm. changes like busting. Traditional gender roles. Yes. But was feminism requiring people to go to? No, right? Hmm. So the decision to create these false equivalencies, to set it up, to play it that hard, it taps into something that's real, but it exacerbates it. Hmm. So can can people, you know, evolve on racial issues when it's constantly being portrayed in these ways? When it's constantly been being made to feel like a threat? all over again. Right. It's hard. That's hard for, for, for people to distinguish, um, what's real and what's not. It's those Southern white women who did that. They did not, they thought the equal rights amendment would ruin their lives. Mm. And that wasn't, and it takes two to tango, right? That's a stupid phrase, but like, There had to be those feelings for politicians to exploit, but also there had to be the politicians to give ideological expression and to legitimize and to structure and to organize around those feelings. Absolutely. Absolutely true. 
So let's move through to the final part before we get to today, which is religion. Um, Mm -hmm. Because if ever there's a group in America who feels like some sort of identity is going to be taken away from them, it would be white Protestant Christians, right? And that, you place that a little bit later in the line. That's like the final piece of the Southern strategy. Well, it starts, and this is hard because a lot of this kind of overlaps, it does. But, so... In 1979, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the, you know, the Southern Baptist, the biggest denomination in the region, um, the Southern Baptist Convention was supposed to be just kind of a loose gathering once a year of these independently affiliated Southern Baptist churches and their representatives to this convention. And, you know, it wasn't hugely political, but in 1979, the fundamentalists take it over. Like mm. literally two men meet and decide they're going to do this. And mm. they decide that if they can campaign at that convention, and it was the kind of convention where you didn't campaign, mm. they just kind of, who someone kind of rose to the top of who was going to be the president of the SBC, but they orchestrated a campaign. They planned it out and they put a fundamentalist, someone who believed in the submission of women who um, was a biblical literalist um, into the presidency of the SBC. And slowly over 10 years, they get that person to continue to appoint fundamentalists to all of the committees and the com- literally there's a committee on committees and then all these groups and they fire their lobbying association mm-hmm. in DC and replace it with one that instead of, Instead of lobbying or, or or kind of watching legislation to make sure there's freedom of exercise of religion, they start pushing for establishment, right, of Christianity mm. into government in every place that they can. What sort of time time frame are we talking about here? So it takes them about ten years from 1979 to really flip the organization. Mm. Um, they also like they re- they purge moderates from the Southern Baptist organization, like they make it untenable. They, they kick women out of seminary. They literally say they, they readopted into their code that women are submissive to their husbands. Like it's a real, you know, reactionary, um, kind of decade. And, and it devastated a lot of Southern Baptists who felt like the Baptist church was the place where, each little church was independent. It didn't have a hierarchy. It was about personal relationship with God, like did not like those kind of dictates. Mm. Right. And it was, it was very devastating and a whole lot of people left the church, but the people that stayed went very literalist and fundamentalist. And then the lobbying group and some of the key ministers who many of them at this point start becoming televangelists they start making a lot of money, um, decide they want to have a bigger um, piece of the political kind of pie, so to speak. And they um, they get really angry at Jimmy Carter because they think he's one of them Hmm. and he disappoints them. They get really annoyed with Reagan because Reagan will start Reagan will kind of play to them rhetorically, but he won't do anything either. And so in 1988, they run their own candidate 
and Pat Robertson in the Republican primaries, who, of course, loses. And then they realize they're going to have to kind of marry, you know, form this um, alliance with the Republican Party because they're not big enough to, you know, run their own, you know, candidate. And the Republican Party realizes if they don't make, if they don't cement that relationship, they're going to have this group that is constantly trying to run kind of a third party candidate or it's going to fracture them. Right. So that happening in, and, and alongside Bill Clinton winning in 1992 and 1996, five Southern states back hmm. and even starting to the numbers show pull some evangelical Christians kind of back to the Democratic Party. Um, or at least start to those numbers start to pick up. Um, Karl Rove and some of George W. Bush's folks, who by this time George W. Bush is a you know born again Christian, um, put gay marriage amendments on the ballot in states and really doubled down on the. Christian nationalist rhetoric about the axis of evil and the, our foreign policy. And they start to take what we would see as kind of social conservative issues like abortion and gay marriage. And they put the kind of same framework, the kind of absolutist framework on a host of other issues about the protection of Israel, about science denying and climate change, this, this, this whole range of things become um, framed as that are secular, kind of are made to fit into religious belief. And so what happens is that those evangelicals are no longer a splinter group. They're all out Republicans, right? They're all out Republicans. Would you view this as where we get what you might call the radicalizing of the Republican Party? Because I yes. think we, I think like you want to be a neutral observer and describe stuff like quote unquote objectively. But looking at it objectively, you have to say today's Republican Party, in terms of the types of people they run, in terms of their ideological beliefs, in terms of just the factually incorrect things that are part of the party platform is not a normal conservative party by comparative standards of, say, European democracies. I I agree with that. I think it it moves. I mean, the Republican Party moves to the right, takes the right right at each of these forks in the road. Hmm. I mean, it decides to go there and to the great again, to the great dismay of many of Republic, many Republicans. But you also have to remember when it feels like it's so conservative. Like, look at a John McCain. Mm. Look who their nominees have been before Trump. A John McCain, a Mitt Romney, a Bob Dole. Mm. You know, these are not extremists. They also lost. Right. Which is an important point. And then you get the narrative that they lost because they were moderate. And that 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 reinforces, they would not play these kind of, they wouldn't go to the far right on these three, these three big issues. Right. right? And, and, and so they do not get the same, the ideas, they don't get the same turnout. They don't get the same kind of support. They don't have the same kind of fire behind them. Um, Which brings us to Donald Trump. Trump. Right. 